end, I would like to hear, out of these five practices, whether there was one that kind of dragged your interest the most, that you'd like to hear more about, questions, feedback, like, yeah, I'm running ideas by you in this session, so I would like to hear if you aren't sure that that would work. And drop that in there. I'd love to have questions at home. I'm Heidi Dean, and I work with Christian Schools International as a curriculum and instruction Bible specialist. Um, so I live in North Carolina, actually, moved there for Duke University and just stayed. I am from the Midwest originally, um, but we live in Asheville right now, which is nice. We've got some mountains, and so um, beautiful fall weather, as you guys have up here. One of the things that I've been doing with Christian Schools International is just talking with you all about your Bible instruction. And I'm kind of in the role of like a researcher and compiler of techniques that I've been hearing you all using in your classrooms. So I want to show you that... We have been trying to develop um, a cohort of lead teachers. And if any of you would like to be included in contributing to web articles, contributing to the research we're compiling, including what we're going to mention in our Bible Instruction Symposium, go ahead and write down my email. I would love to hear from you. If you are using the current practices that I discussed, I would love more examples of how it's working at your grade level at your school, for instance. So here is a picture of some of our lead teachers that we've been talking with. Because we're trying to hear on the ground practices that people are using specifically in Bible from teachers who have been thinking, perhaps researching, trying to read up on best practices, try it over and over. Because some of us were just asked to teach Bible as part of our load and maybe we didn't have a lot of training, we didn't have thought through it a lot in terms of pedagogy. So who are the people who maybe come from project-based learning and they're doing project-based learning Bible? Or they're doing inquiry-based or they're doing a lot of Socratic seminar you know, where they've thought through the technique for Bible specifically. So what I'm going to reference are some web articles that we have been putting together. You'll see the inquiry-based. You'll see that there's one for elementary on storytelling and one on active learning through text-based analysis and discussion. And those things will come up in the um, talk today. But if you ever want more information, the full version's on the CSI website under Bible Educator Training. And again, this is still relatively new for us because we're just developing these articles. It's our third year doing our Bible Instruction Symposium, which is a more full-fledged training. I would love you on the sheet of paper that I gave you to maybe jot down two things. Is there something in your own Bible instruction that you've been trying that you think, you know, this year is bearing some fruit, like the kids seem to be getting into it or it's producing some good effects? And secondly, what seems to become a perennial challenge for you is just, it's always become a difficulty in Bible class. And if you would jot those down as well as kind of share with um, a partner near you, I'd love you to pair and share at least one encouragement and one frustration, or not frustration, just a challenge um, with someone near you.
projects, right? Um, it would be great to share the encouraging things that you've been coming upon. That would be excellent maybe for a web article. There's too many, I think, variety of awesome practices you're probably trying. I'd like to hear the challenges, actually. So what would be a couple, you know, single words or phrases of common challenges in teaching Bible? It can be a popcorn word that comes to mind. Teaching facts and heart. Facts and heart, okay. Yeah, like kind of balance the two, you know, Biblical facts are important, but if you do too much of that, it's, it's boring for them, and they're not going to care. Yeah. Facts are a little boring. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, very low, just Bible literacy. Yeah. There's many different levels. Yeah, so maybe illiteracy. Illiteracy, yeah. Knowing what it means to be reformed, reformed worldview. Okay. Lack of knowledge in that. Doctrine generally, reform doctrine plus worldview. Okay. Yeah. Finding uh, like resources that gets you engaged. Like I love your simulations, but there's not a lot of resources out there that I found that good. Okay. Yeah. Yes. No, no set standards like other classes. Yeah. Exactly. Or a set scope and sequence, because I found many times, sometimes administrators just sort of let you teach, especially secondary, what you enjoy teaching or the part that you're familiar with, but sometimes we each end up teaching very similar, some gospel, some epistles, or worldview. Or... Finding commentaries that middle schoolers can understand. Okay, so academic, but also age-appropriate. Yeah. What else? that mostly summarize what you had written on your sheet of paper? Well, I appreciate that the very first one was facts plus heart. It's actually something that we frequently hear when we conduct a survey of Bible teachers, is that it's a unique class in that is there, there's nothing else we almost care about as much as this, where it, our heart and our passion and our hopes for our students are wrapped up in Bible class. But you do, it's also an academic class with content. You know, there are things they should probably know about the Bible and about God. And yet we want it to be, you know, relational, our relationship with them, um, emotional. We want it to be about their heart being engaged um, in loving Jesus. Then the very next comment was really about biblical illiteracy. You know, do you scrap on the academic content to try to do more with the heart and the hands at the same time that you actually have a surge or a rise in biblical illiteracy in our culture? Um, and so these, sometimes people feel like they have to lean heavier on one or on the other. Um, the side for biblical literacy could say, you know, as our culture becomes more secular, our students are going to need more grounding in their faith, not less. Um, our own Christian youth sometimes have not really read and been discipled at maybe the level even of the past sometimes. Perhaps church engagement is lower as kids get busier. Um, it could just be that because our culture has sort of lost some biblical literacy that has affected all of us. And this was an article that Christianity Today did. They've done multiple, you know, surveys of uh, why Johnny can't read the Bible. Even evangelicals, we don't know, like the Ten Commandments, we don't know some of the basic facts that years ago we used to know. On the other hand, you know, the other side would say, if we're already struggling with biblical literacy, then doubling down on more content um, when students are already perhaps not as engaged, that's a hard sell. Like, is that really going to motivate them and inspire their desires? 
Um, what we need is maybe something more devotional that's going to kind of grab their hearts. And so I think most of us try to solve this dilemma by kind of toggling back and forth. So you teach a certain amount of content, like some stories, and then you try to be like, okay, now how do we apply it? And maybe let's do something artistic, a craft, or maybe a project. And we kind of toggle back and forth. And many of you have probably been coming up with some good ways to try to blend more and, and find things that are richly biblical but are also engaging. And I would love to keep hearing those from you. What I have come to are listening and finding a set of some practices that I would like to suggest might be a way to reach the head, reach the heart through the head, actually. That the two can be more naturally integrated when we teach biblical content through some lenses that are going to resonate maybe with a postmodern student better. That there is a way of doing theology itself that is more artistic and emotional than has sometimes been done in the past. And so these are a blend of practices that um, I've just heard from some different teachers. Uh, I haven't even gotten the chance to try them fully myself. But if I want to give you an overview, they would be first to increase imagination by exploring the Bible's imagery that's located primarily in the narratives and in the poetry sections of the scriptures. So we'll talk more about what imagery is. This is an overview to a large field called biblical theology. Secondly, Staying more text-centered, where we're actually coaching students in skills of um, manipulating a text themselves, like being able to read, analyze, mark it up, maybe start with a fully unmarked copy, so everything in there is their own work that they had to mark up the scripture. Third, um, using more student inquiry and discovery, where based on their, the details that they're looking at, they actually come to findings that they then come share. And they sort of, it produces perhaps more wonder, and uh, we'll talk more about inquiry. And then bringing that into like a seminar discussion, which seminar is a very uh, more lengthy, structured, 45 minute discussion with a lot of protocols, but the protocols we think provide some boundaries that are good. And then fifth, all of us kind of seeking more wisdom in this area of Bible pedagogy. Um, even David Smith and researchers would say there's not necessarily been a lot of research into teaching the Bible specifically at K-12 level. And today we're focusing a little more on 6 through 12. Um, so this is an area where many of us are really trying to grow more and learn how to teach it better. Alright, now this first point is actually like half my talk, I feel like, so it's not equally weighted. So this is going to take a little longer to explain because biblical theology is a field of academic study, but it's also available to all of us. Um, I saw a curriculum website that was trying to solve biblical illiteracy by increasing a lot more content. And so it was like, you know, geographical, historical information about the Bible, you'd learn all the timelines, you'd learn the AD, the BC dates, and kind of put all the events in order, and I mean, lots of rote memory and facts. And I think that was probably missing the mark on how to actually increase biblical knowledge. It's not that there is any problem with rote memory when properly used. Um, I think things that we have done in the past, like catechism with kids, can be great. I mean, I, I love systematic theology. I was trained in that. Um, lecture and doctrine, you know, sometimes have almost gotten a bad rap, and there is a place for them. But sometimes the memory work works better in the younger years, when you can make it fun and add movement. And so I'd like to point out that scripture itself if you look at direct didactic teaching that are like facts and propositions that you can memorize and put back on a test, that's only really about 24% of scripture. 
is this doctrinal discourse. You think of books like Romans, many of the epistles. Of course, these are the ones that many of us reform people, this is what we know and love, and we, we got Paul, and we do Paul over and over, you know. But if you actually look at the bulk of scripture, much more of it is either poetry or narrative, together totaling about 75%, because that's the Pentateuch, your, a lot of your historical books. The, po the prophets are pretty much either in poetic or narrative form. So if you think about the kind of truth that you hear through stories, it's much more emotional. You know, there's like plot, and it's more beautiful um, than what propositions are. And propositions are kind of us, you know, systematizing the whole Bible. And to certain personality types, that makes a lot of sense, and that seems really fun to like systematize and organize. To many students, it's highly abstract to just try to have this like doctrine of either choose any of your actions, predestination, justification, sanctification. You like pulled it from all the parts of scripture, and you have all these memory verses associated with it. Um, it's abstract. I think it was more of a modernist project back when modernism and the Enlightenment, you know, were trying to systemize all our doctrine. And to the postmodern student who's more image-driven and like we're in a marketing culture, I want to suggest that we could do a lot more with the Bible's imagery and story to really capture their imagination. So if you look at the word imagination, it has image in it, right? So there's kind of three parts of how you get back to the images of scripture. One is that we kind of, first we have to let the Bible be more complex than what we've sometimes explained to students. I think you'll actually win some respect for the Bible by making it complex again and not that easy to understand. We're gonna also work to let it be ancient like, you're not initially going to understand it, or we're not just going to apply it right away. You're going to have to do more groundwork. And then let it be more earthy. And I'm actually talking about physical dirt, but I will, I'll get to that part. So imagination, um, complexity. I think sometimes, like, very well-meaning evangelicals, you know, we want to be like, this is one book, it's God's book, directly from God to you. One author, there's one point, which is Jesus. But you get to that point so quickly. I mean, if that was a story, there's no plot at all, almost, when you just directly lay it all in their lap. And the more that you actually develop a story slowly and build up all the anticipation, the bigger the payoff at the end. If we actually convey that the Bible is actually more challenging than that, you have 66 different books, you have a lot of different authors, those authors have their own literary style. They have their own emphases and main points. Um, it's a lot more beautiful and complex. Even if you weren't a Christian, it's just really well-written literature. And they were very artistic. Um, different authors built on each other. They, they knew the themes that had been started. They picked up those themes. They interwove them again. Um, I think that what happens is that we actually help win some respect for the Bible by saying that it's just not going to be an easy A. This can be academically challenging, but it's going to be very imaginative at the same time on kind of the level that a movie or a work of literature would be. I'm grateful that I was taught a lot of Bible verses, but I think something that happens over time in your faith is that what Bible verses you tend to be taught are things that are very clear and kind of comforting. You know, your doctrinal things and little prescriptive things like, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, you know, present your request to God. And they're wonderful, but... It was pulled from all over scripture, and it sounded in the end kind of formulaic, like life is supposed to work one systematic way. And 
I think later on, realizing that the Bible's not always so clear, so simple, so easy, because you have authors like, you know, the Book of Lamentations, the Book of Ecclesiastes. A lot of prophets had really bad lives, and things ended very badly for them. I needed to sometimes read a summary of the Book of Ecclesiastes that admitted life is often quite random. And not just have such a simple view of God and life and faith and like the Bible's supposed to be so easy and I'm just going to chant a memory verse in my head and then it'll, you know, make my problem go away. I've heard that from many students, my, my more intellectual cynics who, you know, think that the Bible's not even that weighty or important. Um, it's because it's been misrepresented to them and they think these verses are like incantations that you can just chant. And... You know, so the best feedback I got is actually after making the Bible this much more complex literary work that slowly builds, and it's not just all immediately about Jesus, that the feedback I got from my topmost atheist was like, well, I don't know that I buy it, but it was actually very compelling and coherent. And that she kind of admitted that it was a good story, and you actually discussed harder things like holy war and violence, and you kind of had a a point for how it all worked together was to me really good feedback because she didn't have you know a reason to say that other than it was a good story I mean hopefully one day the Holy Spirit will get to her and, and believe it's also a true story but I would like our next generation of young Christians not to leave the faith for this reason which is the top reason right now they feel that they were offered slick or half-baked answers to really thorny and honest questions Um, That's from David Kinnaman's research, You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving the Faith. Um, There's just something to be said for letting students be jarred a little bit, that you don't already know the Bible, like God's not that easy to understand, and there's some cognitive dissonance to different parts of the Bible, where, you know, it's actually kind of hard to wrap your mind around how this all works. So, again, I think sometimes we memorize scriptures that are very comforting and clear, but our students might actually need to encounter parts of the Bible that are dark and confusing, because that will be part of their life. And we're trying to educate them for the long haul, and not just for, like, the short term. You know, sometimes life works out well, but a lot of times, you know, you're going to encounter darkness and messiness in the future. The other reason is psychologically, you know, I did kind of say this is more for 6th through 12th grade. Um, Middle schoolers, I feel like they respect a subject more when they know that it's tough. And you told them in advance it's going to be hard. And then you coach them through it. And they did something hard and they came out knowing something challenging. They just respect it more versus, again, I think seeing Bible class is supposed to be this easy A. So maybe consider when you're talking about the Bible, not just to say, like, this is simple, you and the Holy Spirit together are going to interpret this. That doesn't just inspire a long-term love and respect, a respect for the text. This is complex, it's going to take work. Why don't we try to give it a close reading that we would give to other ancient texts, which we admit right off the bat, I don't know how to interpret the Iliad, like that was a different culture, it was a different time, it's a different language. And sometimes students don't think, This was the Hebrew language. Um, The fact that I'm reading in English means that I'm missing some things. You know, they don't think about their distance between them and the text to respect it enough. So the second part of increasing imagination would be let it be more ancient um, than sometimes we allow it to be. That the modern world and the ancient world actually are pretty different now that we're in our iPhone, you know, technology. So people already think the Bible's old but like just old enough to be uncool. 
And the reason we know this is because the things that, you know, statistically people think are Bible verses, they all sound like they could be cross-stitched on, they're Victorian sounding, you know, thou shalt not do this. Um, this too shall pass, to thy known self be true. None of them are Bible verses. The American public thinks that they're Bible verses because, you know, you can sit there and cross-stitch them, and they're moralistic, and they're proverbs. Um, so, the, so people tend to think that the Bible is Victorian. And the Bible's actually way, 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 way older than that. It's so old that it might actually be cool again to like your middle school students. Because I've taught in three middle schools and, uh, and in high schools. And my students all love mythology. It's very cool. I keep seeing every time I'm at Target or whatever, more marketing that is uh, like even the action figure dolls and stuff that are ancient mythology. For instance, here's a set of games, uh, Seven Wonders and Duel and Babel. And you know, there's nothing biblical about them. But the point is that students actually love an alternate world, like a fantasy world, you know sci-fi, and it sparks the imagination. If you think of all the most popular youth fiction, is it set in present-day America? No, it's like Harry Potter. It's a dystopian universe. It's something that excites your imagination. And I think that's actually what's really cool that we have with the Bible. We have a world of the ancient Near East that was full of tribes, empires, um, you know, conquest for territory. It's the world more of gods and goddesses. These are polytheistic people. I mean, kids today don't even realize what a big deal it is to be monotheistic and how much we've gotten from Christianity that we've gained. If they were to actually compare with what Greek gods were like, how fickle, how capricious, um, how violent they were, you know, then they'd actually, I think, have a little more respect for what Christianity did. So this is a far cry from, like, just the Victorian... Um, era, And I think that if you will let students feel the epic tale, they will be glad <coughs> to actually learn, in many ways, the Bible as a genre is more like something that is a narrative, a history about the rise and fall of kingdoms, like the Iliad, um, set in a, a, a different work of literature from another time, and less like Jesus Calling, because Jesus Calling is modern, American, it's God talking directly to you, you know, dropped in your lap. There's only the Psalms tend to do that, to actually speak first person, you know, or like directly from God to you. There's not that many books in the Bible where God, you know, directly like opens heaven to speak. Yeah, speaks to me personally. So there's a really great way to get the message of God through the ancient epic tale. But I think that we actually win some respect and, and interest from students by doing this. Last one, let it be kind of earthy. And by earth, I do actually mean like physical dirt and concrete objects that they interact with of this earth, like physical objects. Um, Glenn Powell at the Institute for Bible Reading, which is an organization we featured at our symposium in the past, he has this article, The Story of the Bible Told by Trees. He says, you know, the stuff of earth is the stuff of life. And it's also the stuff of the biblical story. Trees, mountains, water, food, they all figure prominently in a slowly unfolding drama of the Holy Scriptures. Now the fact is there's a lot of prisms for viewing the storyline of the Bible, and many are built from really big theological concepts. But it's also possible to over-theorize the Bible and turn it into a collection of abstractions. And the Bible itself doesn't do this. It keeps its story close to the ground, 
making sure we remember it's fundamentally a down-to-earth saga. For me, having heard the Bible for so long, when I actually heard some concepts rephrased, to actually realize it was about our earth, like kingdoms battling for our earth, it's about humanity a lot, and like my role on the earth, um, was kind of revolutionary, because of course that's the life I'm living right now, is uh, food and, and wine and gardens, and the Bible has a lot about food and wine and gardens in it, and it uses it all as these really beautiful symbols of something even bigger. It's like the meal that I mean now might almost be a shadow of this bigger concept of like a feast that God has prepared for us. I guess I had just over-theorized everything to the extent that I didn't really know how to connect the theories, which would kind of float above everyday life, with what I was really doing on the ground when I was working, for instance. So this is, this again, this is the more complex point, but poems and narratives tend to have concrete images in them. And doctrinal discourse picks those back up again, and I'll give you some concrete examples. Um, if you think of poems, they use metaphors like God is my rock, God is my shelter, God is a shepherd. You know, they use concrete, everyday things that we see in our world to draw some sort of lesson about God. And we know that we have to kind of unpack the image for all of the meaning. That it was very important that God expressed himself as a father, or that he expressed himself as a husband. And that we have, like, real fathers and real husbands in our world that we can compare God to. Because if God was entirely abstract concepts, we wouldn't be able to relate to him. Because we're bodily creatures, you know, we're small. Um, so for me, when I heard that covenant was not just a word that, for me, it was just like an organizing principle. Like, I guess there's an old and a new covenant. And they're like, no, actually, covenants were also these real things that happened in the ancient world. Like, kings would make covenants with conquered people, and it was a bloody ceremony. There would be this treatise. Suddenly, everything took on, like, this moral reality to it, and a real-world um, way that it got worked out. I was like, I guess I might need to think more about what kingdoms were and who kings were if you're saying God is a king. I've never really thought of, like, what that would mean, that that metaphor and that image, which is the number one used about God is kingdom and king. Now, the reason it can be hard to do this part and find these motifs that connect the images of the Bible is that they do kind of run a little bit under the surface. They're not as easily um, seen. This is teaching for transformation. You know, they talk about three lines. Um, Bible Project talks about design patterns. Um, biblical scholars have always talked about symbols and images and types, like typology. So that's the academic terms. To show you in a literary example, let's say you're reading the book Moby Dick, and all great works of literature and poetry have these images in them. So Moby Dick, you know, on surface level, it's sailors and a whale. And they're, like, having some kind of conflict. And You've got characters, you've got setting, you've got a plot. But underneath, there's a lot more going on, because philosophers and theologians actually study this book, Moby Dick, right? So if all I thought was that it was a story about sailors and a whale, I've missed a huge part of, like, the beauty of the tale. That's where on uh, Sparknotes, this is a picture of Sparknotes, you can go and click motifs slash symbols and themes, and they actually call those the main ideas. So yeah, it's great that you've got the basic structure of the plot. If you don't know about the whiteness of the whale, like, that was a huge imagery. The whale represents this really big, unconquerable force or something. That's similar to the Bible, where it might not have been said so outrightly, but there were some things they were expecting you to pick up on because of how they interwove them. So I'm going to say two, and I want to see what you can think about these before I even 
spell out how the Bible interwove these. Serpent, dragon, and then sea. So the reason we know these are motifs is because, especially people who can read Hebrew and can read Greek, they're in the Genesis account, they're in the Revelation account, and then they happen throughout the Bible. So if something happens in like Genesis 1 and 2, and it happens again in Revelation 21 22, um, and it's at the beginning and the end of the story, we kind of look and see, was it elsewhere in the story? But the reason we sometimes miss it is like, I just want to ask you guys, do, do serpents and dragons seem to be the same creature to like a modern person? No. Not necessarily. But why in an ancient mindset would a serpent and a dragon basically seem to be the same sort of creature? I mean, dragons are just, they're large serpentine beasts, right? They're like a serpent on steroids or whatever. And I tried to choose an image of a serpent that shows that in the ancient mindset, serpent and dragon were interconnected. Similarly, like Babel, when they say Tower of Babel, that was actually the word Babylon. Like we're always supposed to hear Babylon every time we hear Babel. Okay, what about C? In this image and in the biblical ancient mindset, C was bad. How do modern people often think about sea and ocean, and why do we think of it in, like, nice terms? Vacation. Yeah, vacation, we sit by the beach. Um, why would it have been a negative thing to ancient people? They didn't know what was at the bottom. Yeah, they didn't know. Separated people. Yeah? Killed you. Killed you? Yeah. The salt water, I mean, if you got stranded on the sea, you can't drink it, you'll die. They hadn't explored it, you can't cross it. The sea in the Bible is always a force of, like, chaos, you know, and it's those waters that could drown you, it could kill you. And so the, the, sea, the sea of chaos is there at the beginning, and God, like, tames it. You know, he brings order and form. And then that's why in Revelation, of course, there's, like, and there's no longer any sea. There's no more of this, like, chaos, this darkness. So for kids to appreciate the imagery, they will have to think through a more ancient mindset of how this sounded to the original audience. Um, I left out a verse, but if you, if you even read Pauline epistles, you'll still find the serpent, dragon, and the sea in them when he says, like, God will soon crush Satan beneath your feet. He didn't call Satan a serpent, did he? That's what motifs are. They're, like, hinted at. There's these tiny little echoes. You can't hear the full image, but why would he talk about crushing it beneath your feet? Where does that first happen? In Genesis, yes. Yeah, so that's a Genesis echo, an echo of Genesis. And so... To hear the motifs, it does take being a more literate Bible reader, like more well-versed in the, in the story. It is a little harder to hear the motifs. This is where videos like the Bible Project and biblical scholars are helpful to us. So again, my plug for why, and again, why I spent like my whole first half on this first point, why I think it's so powerful. If we can go uncover more of the Bible's imagery, and again, Teaching for Transformation does this when they say like, creation enjoying or order discovering. They're pulling up themes from Genesis. And kids can then go and kind of connect their life back to it. You know, when I hear a, a child say, um, well, when I'm playing outside and I'm looking at the beautiful trees, I'm actually, like, creation enjoying. And I'm thinking about God as the creator. And, you know, she's, like, tying her everyday life to the Bible. I think that's really beautiful. I think that's how we were meant to think about it. And the big terms that we sometimes have done in the past are the systematic theology. If you look at those, those are hard to keep on the brain. Whereas people actually encounter the images of the Bible a lot. You know, and so you, you go outside and you do landscaping and you do gardening. You can have on your mind like that original beautiful garden in Eden and how 
our work is so important because in the end it's going to be like the garden and the city. And so there is this like fuller flourishing, like the city plus the garden. And I just think you can have these kinds of things on the mind that give like a poetic beauty to your life. I think it's something that once you have it, you never want to walk away from it. Because I hear my secular friends not having anything nearly so poetic or sacred to guide their life to. They don't know how to like process all the data of life. Um, for them to hear that like I can tie my life to this like these bigger thoughts of like my meal is just a shadow of like the heavenly feast or my the marriage that I'm in, the best romance is just a shadow of like the the, the husband wife relationship that God has with the church. You know, it, it makes all of life more sacred makes all of life more meaningful. And when we talk about keeping kids in the faith, I think it's the sacredness of life, the poetry of all of it having a beautiful meaning in God's kingdom um, that will kind of hold them in long term. So I would like to stop and see what you guys uh, have encountered on this first half, which was on the biblical theology. Have you come up with resources? Have you used books such as these or others that you think um, have told you some things about the plot with some new images that you had never, you know, thought much about. Did anybody go to that talk for the life of the world earlier today? No. What about the Bible Project videos? Yes. So sometimes when you watch those, do you feel like that's like new ideas that you hadn't... Does anybody remember a specific even one that was interesting to you or stood out to you? Covenant one was great. Yeah, Covenant. The Son of Man. Mm-hmm. And just um, seeing who Jesus was and um, fulfilling prophecies throughout the Bible. And they ground it back in, I think, yeah, way back in the Old Testament, like what Son of Man meant before Jesus ever came. Right. So you kind of set up the plot. They'll do that in a lot of years. What was that one that you just mentioned? What was the title of it? Son of Man. Son of Man. I think in that one they even talk about, like, yeah, Son of Man, like, being human versus more animalistic tendencies. How animals, like, whenever they're, like, you know, sin is crouching at your door and wants to desire to have you. Like, evildoers will be compared to, like, a lion or an animal that's vicious. But, like, humans have this different role. And they talk about Jesus being, like, the perfect human, you know, the fulfillment of what we were meant to be. Has anybody checked out? So this is like newer publishing, Nancy Guthrie, Even Better Than Eden. It's a really easy read where she gradually unpacks one piece of the plot at a time. So she talks like the Bible, the story of the Bible through the tree, through God clothing us, through a meal, you know, and she kind of, she, it's basically this new field called biblical theology. Um, there is a video series on Amazon you can watch for free, The Life of the World. This is a children's book. It's the theme of temple and Eden, uh, Eden becoming temple, becoming, you know, holy holy land, holy place. And it's for kids. And it teaches a lot of adults when they read it because they're like, I didn't know that Eden was supposed to foreshadow the temple and the temple was supposed to go back to Eden. And, and there is, there's a lot of details in the text that we often miss. And if you really want to geek out on it all, the dictionary for biblical imagery is so cool because it'll be like, well, water, you know, has these good connotations in the Bible, and, like, you see Jesus, you know, the woman at the well, or, like, all the ways that um, water comes back in this, like, beautiful motif of life, and it'll do, like, wine, water, wine press, uh, just all your W's, right? And um, I think it's kind of amazing to... 
Then other, uh, that's C.S. Lewis, and that's Lord of the Rings. You know, there are some of the ones to really bring that whole, like, kingdom imagery. And that kingdom has with it, it has violence, warfare, enemies. And there's a big reason God kind of interwove kingdom um, motifs in scripture, because, you know, that's how he wanted to portray um, the story of evil and what it's done in the world. So they have always felt like been a great resource. Okay, well, I would like to hear from you guys. Oh, so this is just, there's a lot. There are academic people in both Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox camps doing a lot of great work. It's been published more in the last, like, 20 years. And now in the last, like, five years, especially a lot of all your, like, Zondervan different publishers are publishing short works. So if you just want to read short studies in biblical theology, as I said, it's going to be, here you go, Son of God, thank you. Like the, It would go along with the Bible Project video for your own learning more. City of God, the goal of creation. Why, like we started with a garden, but we're moving to a city. Um, chaos to cosmos is like the whole, like the sea, and yet God's creative activity. So these are short. I think they're only supposed to be like 100 pages, if you want to check out. Is there a place that we can have? Yeah, this one's short studies in biblical theology. This is by Crossway. Um, but I would just say go to the Bible Project because that's free and they're five-minute videos. But This second half, I'd like to hear your input again. Um, by the way, our Old Testament and New Testament high school surveys that Christian Schools International wrote, God's Unfolding Kingdom and Hope of God's Kingdom, they use, this was the main element we added, was the pictures, the images. So, <laughs> holy people, holy place, how... You know, again, even to temple to new heaven, new earth was like a connecting of holy place. So kids kind of learn to draw the different stages in the Old Testament story, especially stages like Israel and exile, which often got shortchanged and are a huge part of the Old Testament. The Old Testament alone is like 75% of the whole Bible, and a lot of times we haven't done justice to like Israel and exile. From you guys, though, let's switch gears. The second half is now, let's say we were trying to find these discoveries in the Bible, what would be the benefits of letting students discover things themselves versus me as a teacher telling them the same content in like a lecture form? I'm just, because all the rest of the points kind of hang together. They're all kind of about student discovery. But I know you've probably thought about this too. Have you guys seen some benefits? Like if a kid says it instead of if I say it. Excitement. Excitement? Yesterday, I did the story of Joseph um, with Potiphar's wife, and I was reading it and from the Bible, from the um, NIRV, the, the third grade edition, and I was sitting on the floor with them in a circle, and I stopped when I said that she, she told Potiphar that, um, I didn't use the word rape, obviously, but, you know, with my first graders. But I, I said, and she said that um, Joseph hurt you, and or hurt me, and I just stopped and waited, and little Nick said, liar. <laughs> and all my first graders started saying, she lied. But, you know, it was the text right there with, I, you know, adjusted one or two words. But, and they, they'll remember that story Monday. You know, but the fact that it came from him, yeah. that he claimed her as a liar, yeah. and yeah. named that sin, yes. you know, that's staying text-centered. Yeah, exactly. So, other thoughts, because I think there's some 
psychological, you know, benefits, emotional, spiritual, or academic, when a kid kind of comes up with it? Like, how do, especially with, by middle school. How does it have more credence <laughs> if an eighth grader said it than if I said it? What do you think? I think it's really important to keep the text centered, especially yeah. if you're taking an imagery type approach. Because yeah. um, there's dangers in, in kind of a postmodern image-based right. approach yes. where, where the, the Bible doesn't have a definite meaning, where we create the meaning. No, the Bible has a meaning. Yeah. Um, and we're going to go in. So these are actually going to be about what protocols allow for inquiry and discussion to actually have a very rich academic grounding in Scripture rather than being, oh, just my opinion. my. Cause so let's start with number one. Staying text-centered. How could you let kids come up with this themselves? Um, so we featured an article on Ben Tamling where, uh, and he's here today, he's kind of been trying to coach students to navigate the text of scripture, because sometimes I know my modus operandi was to kind of come teach Bible the way I had been taught in seminary, which is lecture, so I'd kind of just teach them and hope that they would take notes and put it back on test, and then switch and do some student activities like worksheets, but he's trying to get away from both lecture and from worksheets by saying, you know, we may need to figure out how to actually read book by book. Could you describe what Genesis is about? Can you describe what Exodus is about? We often don't know the books book by book, what they're really about. Have they actually read through the Bible by the time they graduate? We have them from K to 12th grade. We have them for 13 years. Shouldn't they have been able to read through the Bible? But that's often not a goal of ours, per se. So he was like, what if we actually had unmarked copies? Because if it's already all marked up, the kids are like, yeah, you already commentated everything I need commentating on, you know? It's like, no, I want you to go find the repeated words. What is the main idea here? And it, that's text-centered, because it's like, I'm not coming up with this. We're not pulling this out of thin air. The text itself said hands ten times. Why would it keep saying in the story of Deborah, power in the hands, power in the hands, you know? Because these women were showing great um, taking action, and, and God was actually applauding that in that story. So he's kind of trying to show them that rather than kind of getting pulled away from the text, what if an unmarked copy of scripture was our textbook? We want them to actually own this, keep this, we want them to mark it up. We're going to try to coach them in how to read narrative, poetry, um, epistle, gospel, how to read each one well. I think like with gospels, we do do this. We kind of, we know that Mark is a little bit different than Matthew and it's different than Luke. So I feel like that's the one part of scripture where we read very carefully for like what the different words are. And Mark, you know, it's like immediately, immediately, immediately. And then we come up with, like, why would it always be immediately? But um, in other parts of the Bible, we haven't always done that as well. So, again, there's, you know, you, you'd have to kind of obviously have some buy-in. I mean, does the administration want to do this? Do they have a desire for maybe a new pedagogy, a little more active learning, where I'm going to kind of help coach you, but I'm not really going to be up just lecturing? I felt sometimes like I was supposed to be the expert and kind of deliver really well-spoken conclusions that we're going to, like a youth pastor, you know, shape their mind and their thinking. And um, David Smith actually says, you know, to really shape to to create a change in their mindset, they have to be involved in the process. Like, and that's more and more true in research is that students need to be involved in coming to the conclusion more so than it even needs to all, you know, you logically explain it all. So there's, a, I think, a lot of benefit to them coming up with, um, some of the, the findings. Now, this can start at a young level. How do you start being text-centered if they can't really read super well yet? We did an article on storytelling. 
And I think our K-5 educators, you know, you have the, the right impulse to just, this is about the stories of scripture, knowing the stories well, who are the characters, because then later we can come to even more of the advanced findings. So sometimes just um, narrating, having kids narrate back, having them draw the story back, that's already laying an excellent foundation. Um, a way that we can make it a little more rigorous is to gradually bring our speech level closer to the speech level of scripture. So like I saw pre-K and kindergarten class where I think Jesus Calling Storybook Bible, it's very short little readings, very basic vocabulary. So that's perfect for when you're you know, four years old and you can only sit for five minutes. But by third grade, maybe second, I'm not sure, uh, Catherine Voss's version is going to approximate the biblical language more closely, you know, use the harder vocabulary. And that helps step them up toward reading the full text of scripture. Or similarly, let's say you started with like the New International Reader version of the Bible, which is a third grade level, you know, then you gradually maybe bring it closer to the NIV over time as they are able to use the more complex words. And the last plug here is, I do think if you have any ability, you know, with your administrators or whatever, the more that our English language arts program is a strong program and kids are learning how to actually read text closely and well, that will carry over. There will be some cross-fertilization between the two camps. So I represent a camp where we have decided to really go all into the humanities, right, in classical Christian education. So we don't have one class in English. We have literature, composition, grammar, phonics, um, logic, rhetoric. It's like we just think that verbal reasoning is very important, that they be able to express themselves well, write well, and read well. And I, I do know that schools have sometimes bought in that STEM is really the direction of the future. I would argue that a lot of research is showing that good scientists and mathematicians had a very good liberal arts background. So if you have any weight there to say, like, let's do, keep doing more history in English, more history in English is going to help you out in Bible. So how would it then go? Let's say that you're able to really find close reading of scripture. You see the repeated words. You see what the author is trying to emphasize. <coughs> These little times he stuck a dialogue in and he didn't have to, or he like honed in on this moment. You know, he covered 20 years in a sentence, and then he's like, and at this moment, I'm going to hone in and spend like five verses on what just happened. That's the author drawing your attention to that point. Well, then you could have the students actually make these discoveries themselves, where they're like, why? Why do you think that he honed in so specifically onto this one moment? And you could go check out this article we did. David Grills talking about questions and wonder. And it all kind of, for him, he says with like, see, think, wonder. See, did you observe the detail level of the text? What did you notice? What was interesting? What was repeated? Think, you know, can you make connections? Why do you think that the author kept saying it that way? What would that detail imply? And then you can kind of make bigger wonders and discoveries. Like, you know, how does that fit with that? And is there something that wasn't said? Is there a question that, that wasn't answered? He has found that students are very receptive um, to making these discoveries themselves. And, and then maybe like afterward you could sh you know, have your follow-up, a uh, short lecture or the video or something. But they kind of found it out along the way themselves. I have a question. Yes. What do you do with a student that reading is hard and, and um, so they whip through the passage and they're not analyzing it because kids in middle school they really don't have enough sit to sit there and analyze in high school. Yeah. It's a whole different situation. But. Yeah. 
Well, we do know that I think sometimes to do this well, I mean, the teachers have to give very clear instructions to the students of what you're even looking for. And so obviously it would be helpful to have more instructions to the teachers themselves. Uh, for instance, ancient narrative was so sparse that anytime they have any physical description of a character, it matters. And you're supposed to pull something from it. Why do they say that Rachel was beautiful? Because they never describe people's appearance. So the fact that she was beautiful, very important, you know. Um, you have to kind of help coach students to find that, I guess. And we would love to support you with more resources. So that could be a comment you could leave in our box of like, we need a resource that tells us how to do this. <laughs> you know. um, so yes, question. Sarah, one question. What do you do with students who make a discovery or a conclusion and it is obviously incorrect? So this shows us that God, and it's like totally not biblical at all. Yeah. I mean, well, before I answer that, let me ask you all, what would you do in that, in that situation? And is there a way that it could be a lo learning moment even for the whole class? I would ask them how they came to that conclusion, and let's see if we can find other parts that support that. There you go. Yeah. So what details in the text support that conclusion? And if they can't find a verse, you know, that would be a question that, I mean, many adults in Bible study need to kind of think about because they just draw random applications out. It's like, so where in the text did you see that? Very nicely. Where in the text was that? Um, we're actually going to get to that exact point on the next one. So let me finish by just saying that I think that a benefit of inquiry is it's a tool of lifelong just academic learning to go research your questions, right? Be curious. Go research questions. That's how you learn. I mean, there's, you're only sitting in formal education, maybe through college. Then the rest of your life, you have to drive your own learning and decide if you're curious and go check out a book or never read a book again, you know. But I think for me, I realize I, that's actually true of spiritual life, too. Um, God wants us to go be curious and learn about him. And when we have doubts, go research them. Rather than letting that doubt just sit there and fester or something I'm a little bit, you know, mad at God about, and I'm not even doing the work to go search scripture, to pray about it, to go ask my pastor, my you know, women's director. Like, I need to take initiative for my own spiritual life. And I think that that is kind of what he's modeling, is um, the burden of learning is also on us as a learner to go, to go research. He says that don't let unbelief sit and fester, bring it into the light, and then you can deal with it. So he feels like he's going to help the students do that. Okay, so this is the last point on a technique. It's called seminar. It gets directly to the, how do you have students challenge other students that that is not a correct interpretation of that passage. It comes about through the protocols of seminar. What some people call a Socratic seminar, or Paideia seminar. Um, it's a serious, lengthy discussion that usually takes an entire class period. I would say at frequency, probably at most once a week. Now, in graduate school, like... Um, in my coursework at Duke, all our classes were seminars, but, you know, your graduate students, we would come in having read a whole book. We're ready to analyze, and the professors just wanted a one-page summary because they don't want to do a lot of reading. They're like, uh, give me one paragraph that says that you, shows me that you can summarize a whole book, give me one paragraph of critique. The rest of your grade was really proving that you read the book by how you discussed it, and that's what a benefit of seminar is. It reduces the grading burden of having to produce these letter grades, and it allows you to create more of a portfolio on the student. So I'm going to show you how the portfolio works. But we did do, I think, about a three-part series on the website, which you can go back and check. So step one, 
you teach kids certain skills of active listening, and this goes in their portfolio. Um, Jennifer Mann was helpful in this. And an example would be, because this is a type of discussion that's governed by rules and protocols and mapping, the, the teacher's job is actually to sit and facilitate and to redirect conversation, but they're kind of there to help students achieve goals that students have set at the beginning. So this is like a sample of a map, you know, the students are sitting in a circle and then maybe using uh, symbols. So like Q, asking a question, referring to another student by name, interrupting or whatever. I don't know. I made this one up. Um, number of talk turns. So a sample seminar when you're first starting with students, and this is why it could be good to start at a younger grade level so you get to practice it is um, you, know, you get full participation credit just for speaking once or referring to the text once, you know. Then as you progressively work on these skills, your goal now, you say, you know, for this seminar, I'd like you to choose from one of three goals. Would you like to build on someone else's comment, referring to them by name, uh, refer to the text at least once, or speak three times? So students, to meet their goal, they're going to have to, like, throughout the conversation, they have to work to get in there. Uh, and it is, you know, when the standard is high and they know they're being assessed, um, even if it's not, like, a hard letter grade, but, you know, I remember wanting to get my, com my comment out there while I still had a comment and not to be, like, the last person. Because then the professor would look at me and be like, and Heidi, what was your, you know, wonderful thought on this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't have any thoughts anymore. So it does. It, it is amazing for most people have been trained to do this, the way that like my eighth graders can perform at 11th grade level, I mean, I was just hearing vocabulary come out of them that I don't hear them normally use because they know that, um, you know, someone's sitting there kind of taking notes. And so, again, this is kind of, the idea is there's different models of doing it. Um, we are actually going to provide this training at our Bible Instruction Symposium from people who've had 20 years of experience doing it K-212, so even kindergartners can do a short seminar. The idea is like, because you want it to be very high quality, you cut it off when it's not high quality anymore. Like, it's serious, it's graded, it's assessed, but it can become part of a portfolio. Even that really shy student who has such a hard time just like speaking one time, you know, you hold, you hold, you hold them accountable, you help them do it, because at first you might call, call on them, or you might have them read something that they physically wrote on the paper, but it's like we, you have to participate. So over time, they can get better, you know, and by practicing it, um, they improve. Any questions on seminar specifically? Because I know that that's a huge overview. Um, there's different websites that explain it more, and the best is to actually sit in a training. Um, so at our symposium, we're going to provide a two-day training, and these people are very skilled in facilitating discussion. They're going to teach you things like you need to wait 20 more seconds than you think you should. Wait for the student who's a little more quiet to say something. How do you cut off the more talkative student? Um, how do you let student questions be the driving thing on the conversation? A lot of people have students write interpretive questions, have to submit them to the facilitator. So that way you can be like, you know, the quiet guy. Well, David, that actually sounds like something you, you have that question. Can I read your question? Or whatever. Or let him read his question. Um, so it's just, it's an art, you know, it's not, it's not something that you learn just from a website. So if you'd like to, to be in this training, I do recommend that you apply for the symposium. So my last point was just, as with any craft, I think it takes it work and seeking wisdom. 
Um, that's why we wanted to put together you all discussing with each other what you've come to that has been helpful, <coughs> as well as people who have been experienced in this field for a number of years coming and doing some training. And so our Bible Instruction Symposium will be in February. Um, it is by application, so you need to apply by December 2nd. But we're going to be bringing, you know, content area masters. So for elementary school, we're honing in on storytelling and how it awakens the imaginal life of a child. And it's a Charlotte Mason scholar, because Charlotte Mason is all about storytelling. And then for middle and high school, you get to choose. Do you want more of the biblical theology side, which is the Hebrew narrative and the Hebrew poetry, and you want a Hebrew scholar to kind of come be like, so this is how you read the stories of the Bible really well, and find the characters and find the plot. Um, that's what our Old Testament scholars going to do. Or you can come have the National Paideia Center, who has been training in all kinds of contexts, you know, um, charter, secular, public, inner city. In fact, they say this is actually great for minorities to have, like, Socratic seminar first. To sit and write is so, like, um, pulling teeth for students is so hard to just like sit and write a paper. If they sat and discussed the exact same thing for 45 minutes and they had to work out their thoughts verbally, a lot of people can turn around and, and verbally write out a paper, you know, because they already said it, and let's let the writing follow the discussion. So these are kind of some masters in that model. It's like a 100-page set of rubrics and checklists just to get you going, you know, like, check, I remember to tell them to set a goal. Check at the end, I ask them if they have met their goal, you know. So that is what we have coming up. We also are hoping to keep the symposium going by saying, like, of course it takes time to practice these things in your own classroom, so we'd like you to commit to meeting, like, once a month with a Zoom group uh, over the Internet where you kind of, you talk through what you're working on in your classroom, and you get a little accountability because a month later you come back and you say, I tried a seminar, and these were my problem areas, and... Etc. You check back in with the same people. If you, for some reason, can't get to the symposium or um, aren't able to make it, we'd still love to invite you to maybe be part of a Zoom group where people of your same age uh, level, like if you're teaching 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, would maybe be talking about best practices at their age level. Like, what could a 6th grader actually do? Maybe I'm letting them off the hook, thinking they can't do this. Because your class is apparently able to discuss for 15 minutes without going, you know, going crazy. So, stuff like that. That's what, that's what our hope is for professional development. So that's a lot of ideas. Please write on a sheet of paper, like, what you're most interested in, or questions. You don't buy it, and you can drop it there in that class. Great to meet you guys, and just come up with any other, um, come up here if you have any other ongoing questions.